Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, and let's begin this live broadcast, if we may, in verse 1. Then Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses, and for Israel his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and her two sons, of which the name of the one was Gershon, for he said, I have been an alien in a strange land. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For the God of my father said he was mine help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness, where he encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses, I thy father-in-law Jethro am come unto thee, and thy wife and her two sons with thee. This is a family chapter. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is mentioned 13 times in this chapter alone. And if you add up every time the term father-in-law is found in the first five books of the Old Testament in reference to Jethro, the beloved father-in-law of Moses, it comes to 16 times. This feeds in very nicely to the fifth commandment. Honour thy father and mother. And for this morning, I'm going to suggest this. Honour your father-in-law and your mother-in-law. 18.1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, he's a Gentile, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses. So word got around pretty quickly. You think the fires in California at the moment are quite a sight to behold, those wildfires which are burning California. But this got around the Middle East a lot quicker, or then wildfires. And for all Israel, and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. The same would be true uh, concerning Rahab in the book of Joshua. She would say to uh, the spies, we know all about you. We know all about the one true God. We know what he has done for you. Word has got around pretty quickly. I'm sure there were spies back in not only the camp of Herod and Pilate, but you can be sure there were spies in the camp of Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. And I'm sure he knew what was going on in Israel concerning the young rabbi, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostles. And that goes back to the reality that words spread quickly. It really did back in the ancient world. Jethro, verse 2, Moses' father-in-law took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. So it could be that Moses had one wife. She's found twice in the first five books of the Bible. There was an incident over in Numbers where uh, Aaron and Miriam didn't like Zipporah. And they said she was an Ethiopian which is obviously in reference to her skin colour, and they're very critical of Moses marrying an Ethiopian woman, and it's been suggested by some that there's a picture there of racism. Now, let me say this. I personally don't care for the term racism. It's a term made up primarily by white middle-class people, and they say this. They say that white people can be critical of black people, and that's called racism, but when black people are critical of white people, that's not racism. You can't have it both ways. If you are going to condemn white people for being prejudiced towards black people, you need to be critical of black people who are prejudiced towards white people. It could also be that Moses had two wives. Perhaps Zipporah died, we don't know. And Moses went on to remarry. And that's one of the reasons why his siblings were critical of Moses having a second wife. I can tell you this, that Moses unlike David, was for the most part a one-man husband. Joshua, like Moses, was a one-man husband. 
go to the kings down the line. It's a whole different ball game. But here, Moses' and fa- Moses' father-in-law, and that term is used very deferential, very deferentially. I think Moses had a great love for his father-in-law. Some years ago, I was reading Billy Graham's autobiography, and I'll discuss the Graham shortly, and he spoke about his late father-in-law. Dr. Bell this, Dr. Bell that, Dr. Bell said this, uh, Dr. Bell said that. I thought, wow, the guy's been dead, what, 50 years? And yet in the mind of Billy Graham, he still thinks the world of his father-in-law. Honour thy father and mother. Honour your father-in-law and your mother-in-law. And if you are a saved in-law, honour your son-in-law. Honour your daughter-in-law. And the two sons, verse 3, of which the name of the one was Gershom. Gershom, a bit like Gershwin. The Gershwins, very similar. Gershom, Gershwin, not quite, but it's very near. For he said, I have been an alien in a strange land. Well, absolutely. Moses was a Hebrew. He meets this not only Gentile woman, but she's a paganess. Her father was a Gentile priest. This is fascinating, because if you speak to Hasidic or Orthodox Jews, they don't think much of us, those of us which are non-Jews, and they're very critical of us. And they say some pretty horrendous things about Gentiles in general. But it's always interesting and worth reminding our Jewish friends that Moses, their first real prophet, married a Gentile woman, first of all. Secondly, her father was a priest. And thirdly, he's got two sons from Zipporah. Being an alien in a strange land, like I'm a Jew in a Gentile land, and yet the Lord has seen fit to bless me, to reward me. Be like Joseph, he too would marry a Gentile pagan whose father, from memory, was also a pagan priest. This is fascinating. This, of course, is before the law. After the law, Jews had to marry within their own tribes. Jews couldn't marry outside of Jewry. And if they did, they were considered to be heretical. Name of the other was Eliezer. For the God of my father said he was mine help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So quite rightly, he thanks the Lord for blessing him with a healthy and happy, and we hope a blessed wife, who gave him two sons. And he says, he was mine help, delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, verse 5, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness, where he encamped at the mounts of God. Horab, no doubt, said unto Moses, I thy father-in-law, again, father-in-law, 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 time after time, father-in-law, like 13 times, I thy father-in-law, Jethro, am come unto thee, and thy wife, and her two sons with her. So six verses. You've got a couple of colons. You've got a couple of commas. It's like he's on a roll. And he's referring to Jethro, who incidentally has three names in the Old Testament. Priest of Midian. He's a Gentile. And he comes to Moses. He knows that Moses has been successful, has dealt with Pharaoh, and is now about to become Israel's first commander-in-chief, may I suggest. And it's fascinating because you've got two sons, uh, three and four, mentioned in this piece of scripture and what's really fascinating to me is these two sons are mentioned maybe three or four times elsewhere like chronicles one chronicles two and then that's it we hear no more about them which would suggest to me that these two sons of moses had no real role to play in the foundation in the commonwealth in the birth of israel which takes me to an interesting uh topic succession and I was talking to Patrick a few days ago, and he told me about a video that he watched online concerning an American street preacher who's got many children. And somebody tried to trip up this preacher, not physically, but verbally. And he said to this preacher, you've got many children, I see, like 12. 
or thereabouts. Eight. eight, okay. And the preacher said, yes, I've got eight children. And this unsaved, self-righteous rascal wanted to make a scene, make a commotion. And he said to this preacher in question, what about all your children? What are your plans for them? What are they going to do? And this preacher said, well, all of my kids are going to go into the ministry. And I thought, really? And when I heard that, I thought, really? Can you speak for the Lord? What makes you think that he wants your kids to go into the ministry? This is the fascinating aspect of ministry. If you think of people like John MacArthur, a sixth generation Calvinist preacher, his sons are not in the ministry. His grandsons are not in the ministry. None of his sons, as far as we know, none of his grandsons, as far as we know, have any kind of a ministry. They're not soul winners, as far as we know. They're not street preachers. They're not evangelists, as far as we know. Religious, yes, probably. But they're not soul winners. They're not going to uh, succeed their father when he passes away. Jacob Prash, he's got a couple of sons. Nothing from them. Nothing about them replacing Jacob when he retires. David Hocking has got grown-up children and also grandchildren. And again, nothing to suggest that their sons are going to replace them. You can't speak for your children. You can't speak for them. You can't suggest that they're going to all replace you into the ministry. In fact, it may be that you were never chosen to be in the ministry to begin with. And therefore, it's fascinating. We think about Moses and his two sons, unlike the sons of Aaron, who would replace their father. And a couple of them, on one occasion, were struck down dead by the Lord for their behavior. But again, you can't speak for the Lord. You can't go around saying, well, my kids, meaning sons and daughters, are going to go into the ministry. They're going to replace me. You can't say that. That's not your gift. It's down to the Lord. Seven. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and did obeisance and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and they came into the tent. Obeisance. Obeisance. Pronounced different ways, but it means basically to almost proselytize yourself. Mm. Like flat on your face, but not quite. And it's a wonderful picture again of reverence. Moses loved his father-in-law. Do you love your father-in-law? Do you have a father-in-law? Does your father-in-law love you? Can you lean on your father-in-law? Can he lean on you? Can he trust you? Can you trust him? Do you have a connection with your father-in-law? Does he have a connection with you? Thirteen times the term father-in-law is going to be found in this chapter. Going back to the fifth commandments. Honour thy father and mother. And here Jethro and Moses are about to have a meeting. Earlier on, Moses would say to his father-in-law, allow me to go back into Egypt. I've got unfinished business with Pharaoh. And of course, based on the custom of that day, he would be granted leave. That's the term we use. I want leave. I want annual leave. Will you grant me leave? Will you allow me to have leave? We still use that term today. And here, these two giants are meeting up. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. There it is again. And did obeisance and kissed him. Paul told you about Aholicus in the New Testament, like a good old handshake, a real continental embrace, like the French do, like the Spanish do, and the Italians probably. And they asked each other of their welfare. There's a term we use today, not just welfare concerning the benefit system, but welfare, like how are you doing? How is life treating you? And they came into the tent, traveling tent, caravan. There's no temple yet. These guys are outside people, if you will. They're traveling around. And like I say, word has got back to Jethro concerning his very successful son-in-law. He's just led, what, four and a half million people halfway across the Middle East, including many numbers of animals. And they've made it. 
they've made it. They've beaten Pharaoh, a type of the Antichrist, I guess. In a sense, we could suggest this, that Cromwell's men, on many occasions, were able to defeat King Charles I's men. And at times, Charles I had more soldiers than Cromwell. But Cromwell's men were very well disciplined, religious, some also saved. They would march, sing, and praise the Lord. Could you imagine that today? Could you imagine the Royal Marines marching, praying, and praising the Lord? Of course you can't. They'd be kicked out of the Marines if they were caught doing so. So it's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating how quickly word got back to Jethro and others. And of course, this is also an indirect reference to the gospel. There's different ways to get the gospel out. But it would have been fascinating had you lived, had I lived, had we all lived back in the day. And word has gone around the world like wildfire concerning the children of Israel, the Red Sea, the collapse of a nation, all of Pharaoh's high priests unable to push back, unable to repel the sovereignty of the Lord, the humiliation of the whole thing. I know when Charles came up against Cromwell and Cromwell had Charles on the back foot, that sent shockwaves across Catholic Europe. They couldn't believe it. A guy called Cromwell, just an ordinary chap, middle class, of course, he wasn't a peasant, but he wasn't royalty by any stretch of the imagination. They couldn't believe it, that this guy was head of the, at the time, British army, had Charles I, the King of England, on the back foot. And they thought this, well, if Charles I falls, perhaps we will fall. Go back to the Arab uprising, 2011. People watching what was going on in Iraq and Egypt and Libya very carefully. They saw Saddam fall, 2003, 2004, 2005. By 2006, from memory, he's arrested. And shortly afterwards, hung, publicly executed. And people thought, if he could fall, perhaps we could fall. And people were twitching in capitals around uh, the Middle East, Egypt, Tripoli, or Cairo, Tripoli, Riyadh, to be precise. They knew what was possible. And here, like I say, you've got two giants meeting up. But you've got a Jew and a Gentile. Jew and a Gentile. Paul told you from... Galatians chapter 3, that once you are in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female. 8. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the travail that had come upon them by the way, and how the Lord delivered them. Father-in-law, you wouldn't believe how successful we've been. The one true God has not only decided to choose us as his people, he has decided to humiliate the most powerful men at that time on the face of the earth. And on top of that, we are on a roll. Nobody can touch us. Nobody can get near to us. We are untouchable. We are on top of the world. And of course, you know that when the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is initiated, it's a similar sort of a thing. You've got redeemed Israel on the new earth. You've got the body of Christ, the church, in New Jerusalem, people coming back and forth. The nations are also going to be summoned to visit the King of Glory. It's going to be a wonderful time. But here, this meeting is concerning Israel's success over the Egyptians and how the Lord, how the Lord, how the Lord had delivered them. He gives glory to the Lord. And it's like this if you are saved, you should always give glory and honor to the Lord. You should always praise Him for saving your wretched soul, always credit Him for shedding his precious blood. You were told over in Acts chapter 20 how God's blood has redeemed you. Not God the Father, not God the Holy Ghost, God the Son. God's precious blood has redeemed you. 
but a lot of preachers today don't like to preach about the blood. They don't like to preach about grace being just what that is, grace, like God's righteousness at Christ's expense. They twist the gospel, twisted theology. But here, nothing is twisted, everything is pure and holy and wonderful. And as I say, you've got two people rejoicing in the Lord's sovereignty. Verse 9, And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. You've got a pagan Gentile referring to God using the term Elohim. That's a sacred name, Elohim, Jehovah, if you will. You've got a Gentile referring to the one true eternal God by his own personal sacred name, Jehovah. This guy is probably saved. Now his past is paganism, if you will. There's a guy in the New Testament called Simon uh, the leper, I think from memory. And uh, obviously he still is experiencing the term the leper. He's long been healed of his leprosy, but Simon the leper from memory is still referred to as Simon the leper. Jethro, priest of Midian, is he still a priest of Midian? Is he still the priest of Midian? Question mark. We don't know. What we do know is he seems to know, and more importantly, he seems to believe how the Lord is the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Verse 10. Blessed be Jehovah. Doesn't say Adonai. Doesn't say the Blessed One. Blessed be the Lord, Jehovah, who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. He doesn't question Moses. He doesn't say it was Lady Luck. He knows what has taken place. He accepts the account from Moses. A wonderful picture, incidentally, of a sinner accepting the plan of salvation when you share it with such a person. Out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians, like right under his nose. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein thou dealt proudly, he was above them. So this is a wonderful account of, first of all, a relative of Moses accepting Jehovah as the one true God, the God greater than all gods, verse 11 accepting what Moses has told him. He doesn't argue with Moses. He doesn't say to Moses, that's your own opinion. He doesn't say to Moses, all truth is subjective. He accepts what Moses has told him. And on top of that, his daughter, Zipporah, verse 2, is present. Uh, Moses' sons, 3 and 4, are also present. But again, isn't it fascinating when you think about sons succeeding their fathers? Sons going into the ministry. And I think about people such as the Shulers or the Grahams. Or the Swaggets, same sort of a thing. And some years ago, Patrick got his hands on a book written by Franklin Graham. And at the time, Franklin was a backslider, can we suggest, the black sheep of the family. And he was currently overseas at the time, somewhere in Europe. And word reached uh, Franklin that his father, Billy, was about to retire. And Franklin said, well, I don't want to go into the ministry you know, I've been raising that type of a family, that type of environment. My great love is Harley Davidson's. That's where I am really interested. That's what I'm really interested in. That's where my heart is. And telegrams went back and forth between the Billy Graham Foundation in South Carolina and Franklin on the continents. And to cut a long story short, when the figure of around $100 million was relayed to Franklin, he was straight back to America on the plane. Because nobody could allow a ministry and empire worth 100 million to just sink. 
And of course, Franklin went back to America, uh, sat down with the board of directors, the trustees, and in essence, he was able to, or he decided to replace his father. That was decided at board level, at a financial level. The Lord wasn't involved in that. Billy wanted his son to replace him, his eldest son. He's got sons and daughters. Some of his daughters are also in the ministry, would you believe? These feminists. Uh, but because Franklin is the, is the oldest, it was uh, deemed uh, normal, natural, for Franklin to replace his father. And of course, he's got his own ministry now. But the point is this. Initially, he stepped into his father's shoes and would continue the ministry. Going back to the street preacher, making the case how... He was expecting his kids to follow him into the ministry. If you think of the Schullers, Robert Schuller Sr. for 40 years, dominated parts of California, Crystal Cathedral. He was very impressed, very proud of his multi-million dollar Crystal Cathedral. And he went to Rome and got Pope John Paul II to bless the blueprints, quote unquote. Mm. And he wanted also uh, Fulton Sheen to bless the plans uh, for the Crystal Cathedral, and I think Norman Vincent Peale was also called upon to give him the green light. And of course, you know Norman Vincent Peale was Donald Trump's pastor, and Vincent Peale was a 33-degree Freemason. Interesting, isn't it? Before he retired, he decided to ordain his son to replace him, and Schuller Jr. replaced his father for maybe three or four years. But what wasn't made clear to Schuller Jr. was how his sister, Sheila Schuller, and her husband were also part of the pastoral team. And in essence, they were the real bosses. And one day, Schuller Jr. was called into the office of Sheila and her husband and was fired. And he was out of a job. And then down the line, uh, Sheila tried to replace Robert Schuller uh, Jr. She couldn't do it. Didn't have the gift of the gab, really. Didn't have any charisma. And there was a, a powwow. What should we do? The old man at the time was still alive, Schuller Sr. And it was decided that Schuller junior like the grandson there's three robert schullers there's the old man the son and the grandson and the grandson uh schuller junior or grandson schuller gets a bit confusing i know was given the keys to crystal cathedral and now incidentally crystal cathedral is owned by the roman catholic church they purchased the cathedral but as schuller senior got older he fell into hard times fell on hard times and please were going out for food parcels we need food parcels. My wife and I need food parcels. We need donations. We're both living in, I'm not saying sheltered accommodation, but it was pretty basic sort of a stuff, you know, very simple abode, how the mighty fall. And with Schuller Jr. being fired and Sheila Schuller being unable to continue the ministry, it fell to Junior, grandson, no more than 30 at the time, far too young to be in that type of a role. And he too hasn't got much charisma. But the point is this. The old man decided that his kids would replace him. Going back to Graham deciding that his son and daughters, and like I say, he's got several children, would replace him too. But I'm going to suggest this, that nobody called Schuller Senior to be a pastor. He called himself. Perhaps Graham started off well back in the 1940s, but he soon lost his way by the 50s. And when you lose your way and start preaching heresy and yoke up with false religions, your ministry is kaput. And therefore nobody wanted his sons to replace him, but he wanted his sons to replace him, because it's money, you see. And Shula Senior wanted his son to replace him. And like I say, he got fired by his sister, John, brother-in-law. John Haggy, John Haggy Robert, uh, Pat Robertson, yes. many of these people. The Swaggets, 
You've got Jimmy Swaggett, you've got his son, grandson, all in the same sort of a system. But the point is this, did the Lord call those people into ministry? The answer, of course, is no. But 18.1 down to uh, 11, a wonderful verse is dealing with Jethro, priest of Midian, yes, a pagan, up until the point of getting saved, referred to as the priest of Midian. He comes into contact with Moses, he knows what he is hearing, is authentic, receives it, doesn't kick against it. And again, verse 11, now I know, that's a wonderful statement, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Jehovah is greater than all gods. For in a thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. He broke them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. That would have been sacrilegious to do. If you were just an ordinary Gentile associating with the children of Israel, like Moses and Aaron, that would have been a shock to the children of Israel. But on top of that, to take a burnt offering, sacrifice it with Moses, Israel's commander-in-chief, if you will, Aaron, Israel's first high priest. His sons, of course, like I say, would replace him. But Moses' sons wouldn't replace him. Interesting, isn't it? You would think that one of his two sons would replace the great Moses. But as far as we know, did not. David's sons would replace him. Oliver Cromwell's son would replace him. That was a disaster. And... King James's son and grandson would also replace him. That was a disaster. And you've got people like Franklin Graham replacing Billy Graham, a disaster. Swaggett's son replacing him, a disaster. Swaggett's grandson, Gabriel, replacing him. That's a disaster. I'm not saying that the greats or the original guys were much better. I'm not saying Shula Senior was something special. I don't think he was. I think he was a fake, a phony. The same would be true of Jimmy Swaggett. Another fake, another phony. And also Billy Graham. A compromiser. But one thing I will say, in defence, if you will, of those three gentlemen, is they all had charisma. Mm. They all had something which could relate to people. People like to relate to people with character, with charisma. Franklin hasn't got it. Schuller Jr. hasn't got it. Swaggett Jr. hasn't got it. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Again, did you see that? Moses' father-in-law took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came, and all the elders of Israel, this is a big event, to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So it's clear to me that Jethro is probably a saved man. When Moses first met him, he wasn't, which is also interesting, because you've got Moses marrying an unsaved Gentile, which you're told not to do in the New Testament. A saved man or a saved woman should never marry an unsaved man or an unsaved woman under any circumstances. And yet I can think of several people that have done just that and are very unhappy. And I wonder why. He marries an unsaved woman, a Gentile, a pagan, of, of course. Father's a priest, not just an ordinary Joe. He's a priest. And, and yet the Lord takes that decision, if you will, from Moses and turns it into a blessing. Romans eight twenty eight. Look at 13. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning until the evening. So Moses is on a seat, if you will. The Pharisees talk about this. They say the seat of Moses from Matthew 23, Matthew 24, from memory. And they say, no, we are in the seat of Moses. We've heard this before, haven't we? The chair of Peter, the seat of Peter. The Catholic Church are very good at copying Old Testament rituals. And the Muslims, now get this, they too are very good at copying Christian rituals. This will make you laugh if you didn't already know 
November the 25th is Muhammad's birthday. Did you know that? November the 25th is the birthday of Muhammad. December the 25th is the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we know that Jesus wasn't born on the 25th of December. But it's been established for such a long period of time that we can use that particular date to get the gospel out. But isn't it an interesting coincidence that the Muslims not only pick the 25th of November, but they pick it before the 25th of December, suggesting that, in their minds, Muhammad came before Jesus, which, of course, he didn't uh, when it comes to the time scale. But it's an interesting parallel, isn't it? 25th of November, Muhammad, if he was ever born, ever existed, we are told had his birth date. Contrast that to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Islam is a counterfeit. Islam copies Old Testament facts, New Testament facts. On top of that, they pick stories from the apocryphal writings and they mix it all up. And that's why it's such a mishmash when it comes to trying to untangle the web of conception, the web, the web of deceit. The web of confusion from the mind of a Muslim came to pass on the morrow. Moses sat to judge the people, around four million, but not quite as many as that, but it'd be a good number, of course. People stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And up until this time, there's nobody else to do this. Moses is receiving progressive revelation. The Lord will say to Moses, I am that I am. My name is Jehovah. Up until that time, El Shaddai, El Alion, Adonai, uh, Elohim. But the term I am, that I am, or Jehovah, would be expressly revealed to Moses. And here he's got people coming to him with problems day and night. I remember years ago reading an article about a well-known British politician who went to Downing Street to meet the then British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. And he said, I was there for 50 minutes or thereabouts. And every few minutes, people knocking at the door of the Prime Minister. We've got a problem, Prime Minister. We've got a problem with this. We've got a problem with that. Such and such has just told me this. Such and such has just told me that. Problems all of the time. And he said, but by the time I left Downing Street, the PM was almost about to have a breakdown. I can believe that. It's a stressful job. So therefore, look at verse 14. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone? And all the people stand by thee from morning unto even. Why are you doing this, Moses? My beloved son-in-law, you can't continue this indefinitely. 15. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Well, to be fair to Moses, this is absolutely true. Because God wasn't speaking to Aaron concerning revelations. Or Miriam, he was speaking expressly to Moses. New Testament, he was speaking expressly to the Messiah. And we've already spoken about the silence, the great silence, the 400 year silence from Malachi to Matthew. Almighty God wasn't speaking to anyone about anything for 400 years. So therefore Moses, quite rightly, is correct when it comes to why he is doing this on a regular basis. 17. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. One of the first jobs I ever had, I remember speaking to a senior manager at the time, and he said this to me. He said, James, you need to learn to delegate. Never heard that term before, delegate. 
hadn't been out of school very long. And he said, you have to learn to delegate. A good manager will always delegate. I've always remembered that. Go back to the Falklands War. Go back to the early 1980s. On one occasion, the British top brass called an emergency meeting at Downing Street. The military were there. The intelligence people were there. The police, the senior members of the cabinet were all present. And they all sat around this big operational room. Had all the maps out. And they were very interested in a ship called the Belgrano. And the top military brass were there, speaking to the Ministry of Defence people, intelligence spooks, so on and so forth. And these huge maps were on the table, like what LBJ would experience back in the Vietnam War. Massive maps, huge table, and they're waiting for the Prime Minister to arrive. And they had a quandary, they had a conundrum, they had a problem, they had a a situation on their hands. What are they going to do concerning the Belgrano? And eventually the Prime Minister arrived, came into the room, and you had the Foreign Office there, the MOD people, all the top brass, like I say. And after maybe two or three hours of being in this smoke-filled room, discussing about this Belgrano, it was put to the PM, at the time Margaret Thatcher, that this ship, the Belgrano, was a threat to British naval ships, British naval ships, British naval personnel in the Falklands and the surrounding areas. And they got the maps out, and she started to scrutinise them, like Nixon would also do during the Vietnam War and LBJ. And they said to a Prime Minister, we believe that this ship is a danger to British ships. We believe that this ship could attack one of our carriers. At the time, Britain had three aircraft carriers in the Falklands. And they said to her, we need to sink it, in a nutshell. We need to sink it. And all the top brass looked at each other, knowing that if this was wrong, the repercussions would be enormous. And they all looked at each other. The, the Foreign Secretary looked at the Defence Secretary, who looked at the Home Secretary, who looked at the Chancellor, who looked at the head of the RAF, who looked at the head of the Navy, who looked at the head of the Army, who looked at the head of the MI5, MI6, GCHQ, etc., etc., etc. They couldn't decide what to do. And only one person could make the final decision. Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his law. Moses, the father-in-law, said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. You can't go on like this indefinitely. Thatcher would work 18-hour days, seven days a week. And Moses is saying to his father-in-law, I have to do this, father-in-law. The people of Israel are like children. They come into me with major problems. We are just about to become the people of God. We're going to be faced with some awful problems down the line. I am their commander-in-chief. What, can, what else can I do? And old Jethro 18, 19, 20, 21, which we'll look at next Sunday. Delegate, my son. Delegate, my son. Delegate, my son. And Thatcher couldn't delegate. And they all, they all looked at the Prime Minister, and she's thinking to herself, if we sink it, there could be a backlash around the world. If we let it go through, it could sink our ships, could kill our sailors. We could lose the Falklands. And she said, sink it. She gave the order, and they sunk that ship. Now, that is how it works at the top of any government system. She gave the order, sink it, and it was sunk. Nobody questioned her. Nobody could go against her. She had to make the final decision. Like Tony Blair, Tony Blair, Gulf War II, send the troops to Iraq, and they were sent to Iraq. Any, any world leader anywhere has that sort of authority. And Moses would be the same. He would order the children of Israel to go in and deal with Amalek. And we discussed that last week. Joshua would order the children of Israel to go in and deal with Jericho and they would do so 
And the Messiah would order the church to preach the gospel with the sword. Not the physical sword, but the sword of the Lord, the scripture, the word of God. So the key word will be delegation, and Moses will take the advice from his father-in-law. Later on, of course, over numbers from memory, he will implement this policy of delegation. And of course, from that moment on, the pressure has been released, has been taken off the shoulders of Moses. Thatcher gave the order, the Belgrano was sunk, and she stood firm on that decision for many, many years. Historians have continued to criticise her for it. And it's always interesting, isn't it, when people criticise, uh, especially Western leaders, for deciding to do something such as that, and yet never, or very rarely, question or criticise Tiananmen Square. Interesting, isn't it? Or the uprising in Burma a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Or other world leaders doing unpopular things. But I want to say this and I'll close that the, the main point of interest to me would be how Moses had two sons born to a Gentile woman, neither of which would replace him. And you ask me why? Because it wasn't the Lord's will for them to replace him. They were never called to replace their father, and yet we've got preachers today who think their sons and daughters are going to succeed them. The Lord never called, or very rarely, will call people to do just that. No two people are the same. Of course, for the Schullers, it was big business. For the Grahams, it remains big business. And for the Swaggets, big business. In fact, in the UK, I can think, I can think of a husband and wife team who have a very successful ministry, they gave an interview to a British newspaper. And they said, yes, we run this ministry. And to the surprise of the readers of the articles, and I was one of the the people that read it and was surprised, they said how their kids who work for them aren't saved. And yet they are hiring unsaved people, being their children, to run their ministry. At least with Moses, that wasn't the case. Moses died, Joshua replaced him. Aaron died, and Eliezer, and I think Phineas, for memory, would replace him. So it's just food for thought when it comes to what you should and shouldn't do. Don't be presumptuous. Don't assume that just because you have a ministry that the Lord wants your son or your grandson to replace you. Many times he doesn't. And you need to live with that and allow the Lord to be the Lord and have the final say. Exodus chapter 18. Look at verse 16 again, please. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses is obviously a type of mediator, one God, one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. But to be fair to Jethro, like I said last Sunday, also referred to as Ruel, he had Moses' best interests at heart. He was his father-in-law. These two are very close. And again, if you count up the amount of times the term father-in-law appears, especially in chapter 18, it is 13 times. So therefore, Jethro's advice was no doubt well-intended from man's standpoint, but not necessarily from God's. And this also goes back to James chapter 2, concerning people's faith seen in the sight of others. Contrast that to Romans chapter 4, where the Lord looks at the heart of mankind. This chapter primarily is dealing with delegation, a buzzword which you hear lots from the corporate world. Politicians like to delegate. I guess the most infamous president from recent times would have to be Obama. He was always delegating. He was always on the golf course. He was always enjoying himself. If he wasn't in Hawaii, he was somewhere else in the sea, enjoying the sunshine, delegating to this person, delegating to that person. And then one day, an awful catastrophe strikes. And what do you do? You get onto the top man or woman, and they have to return to headquarters because only they have the absolute authority. 
Look at verse 15 again. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, because the people come unto me to inquire of God. Time after time people would inquire about God via the Messiah. And he would say this. He would say, well, you're ancients, or it was said of old time, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. But I say unto you, and that would always shake people up, because if you go back to Jewry, if you go back to the ancient world, people were used to hearing Rabbi such and such, quote, Rabbi such and such. And then one day, a young rabbi, born in Bethlehem, arrives, and he starts to shake things up. And he says, well, you heard it said such and such, but I say unto you. And he starts to quote his own terms, his own verses. He would quote himself, picturing his deity, of course. But when they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Progressive revelation. Almighty God doesn't just appear to one person and offload on that one person. He could have, if he had wanted to, explained everything, the beginning from the end, to Abraham, for example, the father of the Hebrews, but that's not what he would do. He could have done so to Isaac, but he didn't. He could have done so to Jacob, meaning Israel, but he didn't. He could have done it all to Moses, but he didn't. Progressive revelation. You've got to go several hundred years before the temple gets built. Not David, a man after mine own heart, but of course Solomon. So therefore, again, this is about delegation. And there are certain things that only a president, a prime minister, a king, or a ruling monarch has the authority to do. If you go back to the Good Friday Peace Agreement back in 1999, you've got Britain, Southern Ireland, Northern Ireland, and also the Americans were involved trying to bring about peace. And around that time, the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, a lady called Mo Molan, was struggling. Let's be quite honest, she was struggling to get a deal and Mrs. Molan, a very strange woman, uh, wasn't able to break the deadlock between Sinn Féin and the DUP. Dr. Molan, thank you, like Dr. Gordon Brown. And to cut a long story short, she wasn't able to break the deadlock, like I say. And she got onto Downing Street, and Tony Blair flew from Downing Street to uh, Stormont. And within maybe two or three days of his arrival, first of all, he said to his Secretary of State, you wait outside. And she did. And he went into talks with the DUP, like Ian Paisley, uh, Sinn Féin, like Jerry Adams, and also the late Martin McGuinness. And he was able to get a deal, because, of course, he was the Prime Minister. She couldn't do it. She was sidelined. Go back over the American history, uh, 19th century, 20th century. I mean, the big deals, the big crises, the big situations. The VPs are removed. The Secretary of States are removed and the presidents get on the phone or they fly to it could be red china like richard nixon and within a short period of arriving a deal has been made with the chinese wasn't thought possible beforehand look at trump this year he goes to singapore sits down with the leader of north korea a deal was made his secretary of state couldn't do it previous presidents couldn't do it previous uh, british prime ministers couldn't bring peace to northern ireland tony blair did now, the actual agreement may not be a particularly good deal. You may say it's a false deal. You may criticise the agreement. That's your prerogative. A bit like Brexit. Look at the Brexit talks. We've had two resignations over the past 12 months. Two Secretary of States for Brexit have resigned. They can't handle it. They can't handle it. And about two months ago, the British Prime Minister said she will now lead negotiations. She has the authority, you see. And when she flies into Brussels, like this morning, and sits at that table with the 27 unelected unaccountable, failed politicians, to be fair to her or her predecessors, she has the authority. 
So when we think about chapter 18, we think about Moses, the first commander-in-chief, if you will, leading a people of around four and a half million. Be careful you don't burn out. A lot of people burn out. A lot of politicians burn out. I think one previous German chancellor, it may have been uh, Chancellor Kohl, he did 18 years at the top of uh, the German government. 18 years as a chancellor. Punishing. In the UK, on average, I think five or six years is how long a prime minister will last. Because you burn out. When Tony Blair left after 10 years, he had enough. Thatcher was pushed out after 11 years. She could have gone maybe another two or three years, and then she too would have burnt out. 17, and Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Why is that, Jethro? 18, thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. That's good advice. That is good advice, because again... Jethro has his son-in-law's best interests at heart. It's fair to say that Moses loved Zipporah, Jethro's daughter. He had several daughters. And we spent some time many weeks ago looking at Jethro, going back to chapter 2. And again, Jethro, just very quickly, is a priest of Midian. And the Midianites were descendants from Abraham and Keturah. And of course, Keturah would be Abraham's second wife. The area is in the Arabian Peninsula, on the eastern shore of the Gulf of Aqabar. So, to be fair to Jethro, he was a priest, he's a Gentile, he's a believer. And last week we looked at him worshipping the Lord. He said, there's only one true Lord. And on top of that, he would offer sacrifices with Moses, Aaron, and all of the elders. So the advice, like I say, from the standpoint of mankind is good advice. But I just wonder, I just wonder, and I thought about this last night, I just wonder if Moses was slightly showing off. Hey, Father, guess what we've just done? We've beaten Pharaoh. We've crossed the Red Sea. Our great God has crippled the most powerful country on the face of the earth. And there's an account like this from the book of Isaiah, from memory, where one Israeli leader, I forget which one it was, one of the kings, it may have been Zedekiah, I can't remember, and he starts to brag, if you will, to a foreign leader. And he says, come on into my temple, my house, if you will, check the booty, the gold, and I think it was Isaiah from memory. And he says, you fool. Why have you allowed this Gentile into your inner chambers? This is like need to know sort of a thing. And he had his wings clipped. And I just wonder if Moses is slightly bragging, slightly boasting, slightly showing off to his father-in-law. He wants to impress, you see, his father-in-law. This is a family chapter. And therefore, I can see why Jethro would say uh, from 18, how you will surely wear away. Like burnout, both thou and this people, that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. If you go back to the 1960s, if you think of somebody like uh, LBJ, Vietnam broke him, and he said, I won't be seeking re-election. That was a shock to the Americans. They thought, really? You're going to give all that power up, are you? You're going to resign the most powerful job on the face of the earth? He was burnt out, you see. He couldn't handle it. Day and night, you've got the military coming to him with maps and plans, seeking his permission to bomb parts of Vietnam. You've also got civil war, almost, in America. And LBJ said, I can't handle this anymore. I want out. And he wouldn't stand for re-election, because for him, he was at burnout point. And this is what I think Jethro is concerned when it comes to his beloved son-in-law. Look at 19. Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to God would, 
that thou mayest bring the causes unto God, and thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Good advice. And here it says, Hearken unto my voice, I will give thee counsel. The American president has a counsellor, a legal counsellor. In the UK we have the Attorney General. The Attorney General advises the cabinet, and in America the president's counsellor gives him advice, legal advice, and it's a very privileged job to enjoy. And again, you've got this not only creation of a nation, but you've got a people becoming a very advanced, sophisticated people. And I get sick and tired of thinking about quotes from leading religious apostates over the years, people like Pius XII, who wrote a little pamphlet, which I've got somewhere, when he said that the people back in the Old Testament were primitive people, very primitive people, and we have to make allowances for them. What a patronising statement. Those people, those primitive people, were the people of God. The Egyptians built the pyramids, possibly with the help of Job. And old Job is referred to as the wisest man of the East. He could have been the architect that designed the pyramids. We don't know. A lot of mysteries from the ancient world that even today we don't know about. And these people make the statement that the Israelis, the people of old, were primitive, as if somehow we are so advanced today. And yet you've got, what, four or five popes telling us how evolution is more than a hypothesis? Aren't they the the primitive ones? Teach them ordinances and laws, verse 20, and shalt show them, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Lead by example, Moses. Now, we've lost that. We've lost a real statesman. When I think of politicians today, it could be Obama, it could be May, it could be Trump, it could be Macron, Merkel, it could be any leading politician, it could be Trudeau. It could be uh, Castro in Cuba. It could be any of the leaders in Africa who are still running the show. And those people, they're not statesmen. They're just politicians. They're just career politicians. They are just in it for the money, the power. They're in it for their own, their own selves, going back to Brussels. All those politicians like Juncker, Barnier, Barnier, they're all failed politicians. They're not statesmen. They're not real statesmen. So therefore, when I read these verses, I think about the... Like I say, the creation of a nation, I read about how Moses should lead by example. But we've lost that. We've lost that. And I said this over the years, that I think one of the reasons why great politicians or strong politicians, going back probably to the 1980s, if not a bit before such a period, was that a lot of those men and women had been in World War II. They'd fought overseas. They'd had, they had earned their dues, as it were. George Bush Sr. had fought in World War II. Now, politically, he was a liberal, controversial, I know, but... To be fair to him, he did lead by example. Trump didn't fight in any war, as far as I can recall. Uh, Theresa May has never seen any active service. And that, I think, goes some way in explaining why such leaders are weak, immaterial, whereas Moses would fight. Aaron would also join forces with Moses. All of the leaders would fight. We've lost that. We really have lost that. 21. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, Men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. So it's common sense, isn't it? You pick your out men to rule over thousands, hundreds, tens, and fifties. This is also going to feed into Acts chapter 6. Pick yourself out a group of deacons. 
Also, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. If a man desires the office of a bishop, it is a good thing. He must be the husband of one wife, grave, sober, not given to wine, no striker, so on so forth. So the qualifications of good godly men are listed in both testaments. But again, you have to realise that what Jethro is saying to Moses is coming from his own standpoint. In other words, the Lord hasn't yet commissioned Moses to do this. Now, he will do this from Deuteronomy chapter 1, and he'll wait for the law to be given before he starts to delegate to people to assist him. But again, going back to recent events concerning Brexit or the Northern Ireland peace agreements or Nixon's trip to China back in the 1970s or Trump's trip to Singapore this summer. Only people at the top of government can really make those important decisions. In the UK, should a nuclear war break out, only the Prime Minister has the authority to issue nuclear weapons to be fired. I believe it's the same in America as well. A few weeks ago, there was a a crisis meeting which took place in Downing Street concerning Brexit. And one Secretary of State got up. She was very upset. She was hysterical almost. And she was shouting and screaming, apparently, uh, calling for votes from the cabinets. And the cabinet secretary leaned over and said to the Secretary of State, may I just remind you, uh, Secretary of State, that the Prime Minister has the final authority as to whether or not a vote will take place. And he put this woman, this female, ex-Secretary of State, in her place. Because again, only she has the final authority or the PM of the day. But of course, this is risky because you pick yourself out men and those men are supposed to fear God, 21, be men of truth, 21, hate covetousness which of course is lasting you can last after houses cars money women sex property this or that most churches are run by men who are wealthy Uh, most uh, baptist churches i am told and methodist churches and presbyterian churches want men who are wealthy to be deacons superintendents elders it's very rare to find a church i mean a conservative church to pick out an ordinary guy just an ordinary guy, let's say unemployed, for example, to be in in a position of authority. They don't want such people. They want to know who you are, where you are, and how you can enrich the church. And it's the same in the Catholic Church. The first thing that priests will ask new members of their church is, who are you? What do you do for a living? Like, how much money do you own? And how can you enrich the church? And some of the smaller churches are desperate for married men with children to bring their families to church, to keep it alive, you see. Men of truth, hating covetousness, place such over them to be rulers of thousands. At this time, you've got around five million Jews. Rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. So obviously, a leader who's going to be in charge of thousands, I would suggest for the, or for, from the standpoints of the British, would be like a general. We do have field marshals, but not so many now. And generals are normally over thousands. And then you've got the next category... Rulers of hundreds, perhaps uh, brigadiers, perhaps colonels or majors. Rulers of hundreds, fifties and of tens. But obviously this is in the context of everyday life. Like we are now marching, we are building our tents or we are erecting our tents. And be aware of this, that the tents that these people lived in were pretty uh, pretty huge. If you go back to uh, when Tony Blair met uh, Colonel Gaddafi in the desert in... Tripoli, a huge tent, and that massive tent could hold probably a hundred people. Air conditioning, jacuzzis, nice big kitchen, massive beds for people to sleep in. These aren't like tents you see out in the fields or when you go camping. These tents were huge. 
And Moses has his own tent. Going back to when Jethro meets him, into the tent they go. Handshakes coming together. Guess what, Father and all, so on so forth. And therefore you've got these people needing advice, counsel. Going back to the Attorney General, advising the British Prime Minister or the American Council, special counsel they call him, uh, to the President. And his job is to advise the presidents on pretty much anything and everything concerning legal affairs 22 and let them judge the people at all seasons and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee but every small matter they shall judge so shall it be easier for thyself and they shall bear the burden with thee wonderful advice jethro but again the lord didn't want moses to do this in time this will come deuteronomy chapter one go back to the lord jesus christ with his his apostles there's no talk of delegation there The Lord had 70 and he had 12, 82 men. And out of those 82 men and a few women, of course, such people were privileged to see and watch and observe the master at work. No talk of delegation until afterwards, until Acts chapter 6. The apostles would say this, we are busy praying. It's not right that we should wait on tables. It's not acceptable that we should be taking care of physical affairs like feeding the widows and the poor, so on and so forth. Choose you guys out seven men. And those seven men were picked from within the assembly, not outside. And those men were obviously uh, were spotted from within the assembly and they were prayed over and the Holy Ghost affirmed uh, they were recognized godly men. Cross-reference that to 1 Timothy chapter 3 concerning a bishop. And a bishop from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is another term for an elder, an overseer. There are credentials, there are qualifications. Not all men are called to preach. And yet in spite of that, I see... Many times in America, families on the streets. I see men with their wives and their children on the streets. I see their wives preaching, would you believe? And sometimes their children preaching. It's embarrassing. And these good, godly men, big, tough men, real, you know, alpha male men, I don't think. But they come across as very butch, very uh, tough guys. They'll, they'll preach against sin, get in your face, and yet they can't tell their wives to be quiet. And their wives dress very frumpy. Their wives dress like the Amish or the Muslim women or Catholic nuns. Very conservative. Heads all covered. Can't even see their toes. Really conservative. And people say, praise the Lord, you've got a very conservative wife. Nothing wrong with dressing conservatively. And yet she starts to preach. And her children start to preach. And nobody says that is wrong. Wasn't it made clear from First Corinthians how the women are to be silent? Let a woman not uh, upset her authority over men. She's to be silent. She's to be an authority to her husband. And these guys are going around America, primarily Armenian, just for the record, preaching on the streets, getting to the faces of people, calling out sin. Nothing wrong with that, of course. And then their wives get up and they start to preach and their children get up. Some of their kids are 10, 11, 12, 13. What do they know about life? It's embarrassing. 23. If thou shalt do this thing and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure. And all this people shall also go to their place in peace. Absolutely right. My advice is well intended, and it certainly was, but don't implement it, my beloved son-in-law, until the Lord commands you to do so, from verse 23. And that's, that's exactly what Moses would do. Going back to the Messiah and his men, post his death, burial, and resurrection, and subsequent ascension, then he would allow for delegation to take place. Towards the end of Paul's life, he's got Timothy in mind, not somebody to necessarily succeed him or to follow him. You can't succeed an apostle. You can't follow an apostle. There's no such thing as my successor 
because the apostles were all, all uh, eyewitnesses to the Lord's ministry. But you can, you can continue on in a sense with the preaching and the teaching. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, later he would, then thou shalt be able to endure. In other words, you won't burn out, and all these people shall also go to their place in peace. Because it would be stressful for the people as well. They're waiting in line for hours to see Moses. I mean, just imagine this for one moment. You've got five and a half million Jewish men, women and children arguing over animals, fighting, livestock have gone missing. Perhaps there's been an animal stolen or perhaps a mule has given birth or something has happened and people aren't happy that perhaps they are owed something. And poor old Moses on the seat of Moses, Matthew 23, day and night, he's got millions <laughs> coming to see him. He can't survive that. Going back to, in the UK, on average, five or six years until a Prime Minister will step down, because it's too much for them. And in America, the most they can do is eight years as the American president. Beyond that, even they too would probably burn out. Although recent American presidents like to play a lot of golf, go swimming, enjoy themselves. They delegate an awful lot. And I think that's really a scandal also, because these are public servants. But the big issues, they have to decide themselves. 24. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. Nothing wrong with getting godly counsel. Nothing wrong with sharing your burdens with others. You were told to do so, especially in the Pauline epistles. For the record, I'm going to suggest that Jethro was a good, godly, and probably saved man. He calls God, Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. So he has a personal relationship with the one true God. Moses, like I say, is wanting to perhaps impress his beloved father-in-law. And his beloved father-in-law is very proud of him. I mean, who wouldn't be? When he first met Moses, he was an outcast. He was a runaway. He was a criminal. He was a murderer. And all of a sudden, his daughters say, Hey, Dad, just found a guy. Looks like an Egyptian. And he's helped us out. We've been almost attacked, so on and so forth. And Jethro says to Moses, do you want to marry my daughter, Zipporah? I mean, that's quite a statement to say. That's quite a thought to have. This guy's a criminal. He just murdered a man. Put him under the sand. He's got blood in his hands. And yet Jethro saw something in Moses. Says to Moses, do you want to marry my daughter? And he says, absolutely. And we'd like to think, he said the same to Zipporah. Do you want to marry this man? And she said, absolutely. And these two got married. Never in a thousand years. Would Jethro think that one day his son would be the most powerful man in the world? Would dominate the Old and the New Testaments? And on top of that, even Jethro would find himself in the Old Testament. What a privilege that must be to have your name in the Bible. 25. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people. Rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. But not straight away. There is a delay, of course. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. Going back to the Good Friday peace agreement. Tony, I'm in trouble. I can't break the deadlock. I've got Paisley, this hardline Calvinist, giving me a hard time. I've got McGuinness, this hardline Republican, giving me a hard time. I've got Dublin, breathing down my throat. I've got Washington also getting involved. Because in America, a lot of Irish Catholics are anti-Britain. And a lot of... Irish Catholics in America have sent money to the IRA over the years. Kept the whole thing going, you see. And the pressure got too much for Mo Molan. And Dr. Molan, as she was referred to, 
I won't say buckled, but she came to the end of herself. She couldn't go any further. And she phoned Downing Street, and like I say, Blair flew over to Stormont, the Irish uh, parliaments, and he got things moving. And he was able to sit down with his Irish counterparts, his American counterpart, and a deal was discovered. A deal was done. That's what you call leadership, in a sense, to break the deadlock. And therefore Moses, to avoid burning out, is going to have to delegate, going back to Acts chapter 6. We can't be praying day and night. We are still receiving revelations from the Lord, being the apostles, of course. So therefore, we want you to pick out deacons, which of course they would do, people like Stephen, uh, people like Philip. And those deacons, incidentally, had the sign gifts, which you won't find today. And those deacons went out into the highways and the byways and preached the gospel, which you won't find today. Most deacons don't preach on the streets. Had these sign gifts, like I say, cross-referenced again to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And with those men working alongside the apostles, Timothy, Silas, Dr. Luke, concerning the apostle Paul, and also John, Mark, and Barnabas, that took the pressure off the apostles. Because, like I say, they were praying, meditating, and also receiving, like I say, progressive revelation. So you see how this works. In the corporate world, it's the same sort of a thing. If you are a chief executive, you delegate your number two, your number three, your number four. You, you, you uh, delegate your lieutenants. You have to. You can't do everything all of the time. Even Joe Stalin in Russia had to delegate to people like Molotov and Beria. And Hitler had to delegate to Goering and Himmler. You can't do everything yourself all of the time. It just isn't possible. And that's the sort of thing that we're reading about this morning. 26. And they judged the people at all seasons, the hard causes they brought unto Moses, obviously, like life and death, critical stuff. But every small matter, like, is this my land? Is this your land? Is that your donkey? Is that my donkey? Is that your water well? Is that my water well? They judged themselves. Also, you were told to judge yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You were told to judge yourselves on a regular basis. You were told before you break the bread every Sunday, you are to check yourself out. You are to examine yourselves. The chances are, since we last broke bread seven days ago, we probably all sinned in different ways. I know I have. And I have to confess my sins before I break the bread in about five or ten minutes time. You must do that as well. Paul says if you don't do that, you can become sick, sleeping, meaning about to die, and follow that through to its logical conclusion, end up dying prematurely. Because Almighty God lives inside of us, of course. 27, and I'll close. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. So Jethro arrives with Zipporah, and Moses' two sons, Eliezer, or Eliezer, meaning my God is a help, and Gershom, or Gershom, meaning a stranger there, going back to Moses being a stranger in a foreign land. And again, it's fascinating that Moses, a Hebrew, would marry a Gentile, being Zipporah. It is fascinating that Joseph, being a Hebrew, would marry a Gentile. And both these Gentile wives were daughters of pagan priests. Interesting, isn't it? Of course, both marriages took place before the law. Post the law, such a marriage would be unheard of. Post the law, Jews couldn't even marry outside of their own tribes. Very strict requirements. For today, two Christian people can marry. Just for the record, it makes no difference what the colour of their skin is. If you are a saved woman, if you are a saved man, you can both get married. Because you are one in Christ Jesus. John chapter 17. So one last time, delegation... Sharing responsibilities, not taking too much on your own shoulders. If you do so, you will burn out. And like I say, most leaders, especially over the last 
century have struggled to rule and reign for a period of time. That's why they have cabinets, administrations. It's impossible to do it all on your own. And Moses, poor old Moses, he's leading a nation, not yet in the promised land. In fact, go back to 1948. Governments around the world were saying in secret that Israel wouldn't last 12 months. They thought she'd be overrun by the Muslims. How wrong they were. 1914, World War I breaks out. People around the world were thinking it would all be over by Christmas. How wrong they were. More military personnel died in World War I than World War II. Many times people don't see the bigger picture. But the, the, uh, the key words would be delegation and allowing godly men to work alongside you. But that's not always as easy as you think. You may choose out, you may pick out, you may be able to recognize godly men in your assembly, but are they really godly men? And that's a difficulty, isn't it? Because man looks on the outward appearance, uh, James chapter 2, whereas God looks on the heart, Romans chapter 4. And again, most churches, most Protestant churches, are very picky who they want. They want wealthy, middle-class men to be deacons, elders, leaders in their churches. They don't want poor, working-class men to have positions of authority. There is a class system. If you join a Catholic church, once you do the RCIA course, the priest wants to know who you are. In fact, he already knows who you are before you do the RCIA, uh, RCIA course. And he wants to bracket you. Who are you? What do you do for a living? How much money do you own? Do you have any children? Are they religious? Would they uh, possibly come to the church, fill our pews, and the priest and the pastor, the deacon, the elder, spend their time picking very carefully who they want to rule in their churches. And that, course, that, of course, is not what you should be looking for. Men of truth, hating covetousness, hating lusting, and men who love the truth. That's what Jethro said. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Going back to Acts chapter 6. But unfortunately, most churches, and I mean most churches, don't think along those lines. They want to network, you see. They want successful people to be in their church pews to make the church even more wealthy. And that's why Christendom, in the West especially, is in such a mess.